Hi, I'm Claire Mitchell, QC. Welcome to the Witches of Scotland podcast. I'm a lawyer who specialises in miscarriage of justice cases, and we're bringing you this podcast because we want to tell you about the women who were accused, prosecuted, convicted, and ultimately executed as witches in Scotland. I'm Zoe Vendatotsi, and I'm a writer who's always had an interest in the witches, and I feel that this dark mark against Scotland needs a reckoning. The campaign Witches of Scotland wants three things. Firstly, a pardon for all those convicted of witchcraft. Secondly, an apology for all those who were accused as witches. And finally, a national monument in recognition of all those who are affected by this terrible miscarriage of justice. Over the forthcoming weeks, we'll be talking to a whole host of experts about the history and the modern day connections to the witches of Scotland. Hello and welcome to the Witches of Scotland Christmas special podcast. This is actually our episode 49, which I know I say this every week, but every every time it just strikes me anew how many episodes we've actually done and how many more we have to record still. So thanks very much for staying with us on this journey. So today on episode 49, we have a fantastic guest. But Claire, how are you, first of all? Oh, well, I'm ready for this, Zoe. Are you? Are you? Yeah, yeah. I may, I may throw you a curveball. I may not. <laughs> but what I wanted to ask you, Claire, was: Has there been anything happening in the news? No. Good day to you, madam. <laughs> Claire, now come on. I know there's news. Please there share. <laughs> What's the news? Yes, of course we have news, and probably everybody listening to the podcast knows we have news as well. We're delighted to say that after discussions with Natalie Dawn, who is an SNP MSP for Renfrewshire North and West, she has agreed to put forward a private member's bill in respect of a pardon for those convicted under the Witchcraft Act. So that has been something that Natalie has been working on now for some months. And we're really, really delighted that we've been able to share it with everyone. because It's been quite difficult keeping that a secret, Zoe. Yes, it has been quite tricky. I mean, it's. I think it's worth saying because we've got a lot of new listeners, I think, this week because of a, a lot of the fantastic press coverage we've had internationally, not just in, in Scotland or indeed in Britain, but lots of international coverage. We've been contacted by people from all over the world, not just in Scotland or indeed in the UK, but literally from all over the world. In the last week, we've been contacted by media sources in Russia. We've talked to the Wall Street Journal. The New York Post has had an article Claire spoke on Irish radio. I spoke on New Zealand radio. We've been interviewed for different TV programmes as part of news slots. It's been tremendously exciting. But what that means is we've got lots of new listeners who are just kind of getting up to speed just now. So I think it's just if we just very quickly, Claire, outline what we've been doing over the last nearly two years. Sure. Recap time. Recap. Recap. Oh, I want to make a little tune for that. Well, recap. If only we had actual money, Zoe. But anyway, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so recap. In International Women's Day 2020, Zoe and I set up this campaign and the campaign had three aims. The first was to get a pardon for those who were convicted of witchcraft. The second was an apology for all those accused, because you can only pardon those that have been convicted, not those that have been accused. And some people were accused and lost their lives or lost their livelihood or lost their friends and family. And the last thing we're looking for is a national memorial. Now, that's a memorial which is state 
run and sponsored. It's not privately done. And the reason we think that's important is it's a state issue. It shouldn't be for individuals to have to try and raise money for these things. The state should be providing a memorial in that regard. So those are the three things that we've been working on. And over the past two years, we've been growing popularity and support for the idea of the cause. We have been working with politicians from all parties in respect of asking them whether or not they would agree to such a petition. And we have been working in the background with academics, with artists, with lawyers, with teachers. Who else? So I'm running out of... Uh, musicians. Musicians, that's right. Heal and Harrow as well. We've got people coming up in a podcast soon that we're going to be talking about museums, what it takes to make a museum, whether or not there could be a witchcraft museum in Scotland. So that's another exciting thing. We've basically been working with anybody and everybody we can think of to try and raise the profile of the idea of getting a pardon, an apology and a national memorial for Witch Scotland. And we've got to this very exciting point now where a private member's bill might be put forward. We're hoping for cross-party support for that private member's bill. And so far, behind the scenes, politicians of different parties have said that they want to support it. So we're really, really delighted for that. Now, I'm just going to ask you, Claire, in Legal Beagle Corner, which I've just invented, oh, no. can, can, you, can you just clarify for anybody that's not entirely sure like maybe me still, even though you've explained this to me 500 times now. <laughs> what is the difference really between doing a private member's bill and the committee that discussed the petition? Well, there isn't really anything between them because what happened is we put in our petition to the petitions committee saying what we wanted. And we also said that the way to go about that was by legislative change. And we referenced the same sex sexual offences historic pardon which was given, I think, about two years ago now. And we said that's the same kind of thing we want. Since then, there's consideration of a pardon for minors who were convicted of various offences during the minor strike. And again, it's the same sort of idea. A collective pardon, a posthumous pardon, that would be done by legislature. So when the committee met and the committee looked at our petition and said, this is right, it's a terrible thing that has happened here and we want to look at what can be done. They then asked us to focus in on how we thought that could be done. So we wrote back a letter to them explaining that it was by legislative change and the Scottish Government also wrote to them and in agreement with us indicated that the way that it would happen is by legislative change. So what it's just a different way of getting legislature into parliament, be it by uh, being sent by the committee or being proposed by a private member. Now, we are hoping that what the Petitions Committee do is refer the matter for the Scottish Government to cons for consideration and then they consider the private member's bill along with the issue of the apology and the National Memorial at the same time. And importantly, what we want for 2022 is we're pushing and asking the Scottish Government on International Women's Day this year to issue the apology and to talk about the issue of a pardon and a national memorial at that time. OK, my second legal beagle question is, now this is something that's come up when there has been comments underneath different articles. So particularly there was a, an article in The Guardian and when that was shared, say, on Facebook, there were actually a remarkable amount of comments, like sort of... 
like in the hundreds and like 4.4 thousand shares of the article, which is amazing. But there was the odd question from people. And I think often they were maybe in America or Canada. So it could be that there's just this difference in law. But they used the language of saying instead of looking for a pardon, that they should be exonerated. A pardon's not good enough because it's saying they did something wrong and that, you know, even though you did something wrong, we're letting you off with it. So can you just clarify actually what it means when it's a pardon? Okay, well, what I'm taking as an example is, as I just mentioned, the same-sex historic sexual offences bill. In that, it was made absolutely clear that the people were receiving a pardon, and it was made clear in Hamza Yusuf's language and speech when the bill was passed that what he was doing was passing this bill because people were criminalised for something which ought never to have been a crime. That's exactly the same thing as we're asking for, in exactly the same language. The recognition by the Scottish government, and I suppose on behalf of the Scottish people, that what these people were convicted of was never a crime, and so they should be pardoned for that. Now, I am a person that specialises in miscarriage of justice cases in my day job. If it were possible for me to take every single conviction and appeal that to the appeal court, I would have done it. But it's simply not legally possible. The committee, the petitions committee, when we considered what to do, they said perhaps we could send a test case to the Scottish Criminal Cases Review Commission who could refer it back to court and the court could pardon that one person and then that would be a, a, a symbolic pardon for all people convicted of witchcraft. Sadly, that's not what the SCCRC is there for. The Scottish Criminal Cases Review Commission wouldn't look at something this old. It wouldn't look at it without someone having an inverted commas legitimate interest. I've already been to court in respect of another big case to clarify what's meant by the words legitimate interest. And effectively, it only means immediate family members. So the the best way that we can address what happened in the past and put it beyond any doubt whatsoever that what happened to these people was wrong and that they ought never to have been convicted is by way of a pardon. That is the best way that we can do it to, to make the Scottish government say, we accept that this ought never to have been a crime and people ought never to have been convicted and punished for it. That makes complete sense. That's really great. So the next step that we've got is that we are writing to the First Minister's National Advisory Council on Women and Girls to ask for an apology on International Women's Day 2022, which actually isn't very far away now, is it? It's not at all um, a matter of weeks. And um, we've already had contact with people on the National Advisory Council, which is great. We're, We're already interacting with them. But just to give you an idea of why we did that, the First Minister's National Advisory Council on Women and Girls have a manifesto. And I'll just like to read out their manifesto because I think it puts into a few words what we've been saying in many words. The manifesto is, for generations, our history has been written by one gender, one perspective, one vision, one half of the population. Half of our history is missing. For years, we've been striving for change, but now is the time to change for good, to design a future where gender inequality is a historical curiosity. 
With the voice of everyone, we want to create a Scotland where we're all equal with an equal future. Together, we are generation equal. Now, I think that puts really, really well what we have been perhaps trying to say in various different ways through the course of this podcast. This came about, obviously, because of the lack of female visibility, the lack of historical information generally known about women's history in Scotland and this terrible piece of history. And Mm. I think that while we are saying now is the time to change for good and we want to go forward with an equal future, then International Women's Day 2022 is an absolutely perfect time to highlight what happened to Scotland's women and men in the past and to go on to pledge to do better. Because we both feel very strongly and have said it very, very, very many times in the past that you can't really move cleanly into the future unless you've dealt with the past to a great extent. And I think in the same way that we really, really need to keep talking about how Scotland was involved and how Scotland profited from the um, transatlantic slave trade. We need to talk about other things too, and the witches are just one aspect of what we need to look at in our past, because we're not some sort of idyllic society where we've got everything right and we've got a really long way to go for gender parity and there's some really big conversations that are happening and that need to happen but this is our one section that we feel really strongly about that needs to be looked at and I have to say Claire I'm serious now when the story broke as well on Twitter some of the comments on there were absolutely shocking because we've had the odd little bit of negative kickback you know and it tends to be the same sort of thing but it's maybe particularly the volume of sort of negativity and and mostly it does seem to be from men I have to say and maybe a particular type of man that's not very interested in the past and feels that you know the past is done don't move on but there some of the comments have been really like useful to underline the misogyny that still exists and the misogyny that happened in the days of the witch trials absolutely I mean if you want to know why it's so important that we are doing something like this to highlight the problems of of Scotland's past and to say that we must change and do better. You just have to look at the comment section. I mean, the misogynistic attitudes. Strangely, you say, uh, Zoe, it's people that don't care about history, but I imagine they would care about history if we were asking about pulling down statues or such. Mm -hmm. It's a certain history they don't want. And the other thing which I found really, really unsurprising was, of course, personal attacks on Nicola Sturgeon, our First Minister. And Zoe, did you not point out that they were painting yeah. in different roles? This is interesting to me and highlights, I think, the rank stupidity of some of the commenters. And Claire, I'm not going to hold back on that because I think these people are showing themselves as being really stupid by saying that Nicola Sturgeon should be burned at the stake. Like, first of all, listen to the podcast, dude. We've explained actually how that worked. And secondly, then also calling her the witch finder general. Like, which side is she on, guys? You know, like, is she, is she pulling the strings or is she the one that is being dispatched? It's ridiculous. It really irritates me. And, you know, I just think you should maybe just read a little bit before you comment on it. You know, just, just even the bare bones in these articles often lays out what the story actually is. Yeah, you know, people might look at it and think, oh, this is woke nonsense. But within two minutes of reading what we're talking about, most people have come round to the view that it's absolutely fair enough. One yeah. comment is, this is a waste of time and money. 
And I'm thinking, well, if it's been a waste of time and money, it's only mine and yours, Zoe. It's not yeah. a waste of time and money. And, and there, there is no money. I just want to make that point absolutely crystal clear for anybody that is that's having a go at this. Claire and I have very happily and very willingly given up a lot of time to do this, right? To the to the extent where we've not focused on other things that we could have focused on, that's fine. I'm not complaining at all, but there's been no money. We've got no advertisers, nothing. The thing is, the people that, well, they'll be sitting listening to this, the people that are actually listening to this and are actually interested already know that, no doubt. Yeah. It's the focus you see that don't even, ju- just look at the headline and decide yeah. to. Well, I'm going to go around their door and knock on their door and just go, just so you know, I'm <laughs> paid nothing. We didn't get a so, red cent. Zoe, should we do some Witches of Scotland caroling? <laughs> we just go around their doors and sit, sing, you know. Well, I'm not. No, I'm not sure that that our cat's chorus is going to earn us very much money. I, really. I think it might earn us a a breach of the peace, is what I think it might. And earn. a bucket of water, I think. <laughs> but it's in it's interesting though that we are talking about these articles, laying out the story of it, and it's and it's a very straightforward way. Now, this it is. It's really serious, you know. And I, I made the point on Twitter that if you wouldn't get people making jokes about, like, for example, the Holocaust or I would hope anyway, or for example, people that died during the times of slavery, you know, it's just as serious. It's a, it's a different thing, but it's an example of humans using their power to subjugate and often kill other humans, right? They're, it's not funny, okay? And the articles are often quite good, but then sometimes then use an image that you're just like, guys, come on, like the pointy-hatted witch or like a sexy witch or... Like the whole point of it is that they weren't witches. Like read your own article. There was an article in the Herald actually, which said um, we shouldn't pardon witches. Now the force of the article was, in fairness to the person that wrote it, he accepted that this was a terrible thing that happened to these people. He spoke about Lilla Sadie and how bad it was that it happened to her. He was one of the people who said, "Isn't a pardon meaning that we accept that there was witchcraft?" Well, the answer to that is absolutely not, and. We'll be perhaps writing to him and explaining that. But he wasn't against the idea, for example, of the National Monument. He was in favour of it. But even having said all those things, and I absolutely appreciate it's not the writer of these columns that gets to choose the photograph. Yeah, of course, yeah. The photograph that the Herald chose to put up was a woman in a pointy hat with a broom. And I can't remember, was it was her face green? I can't remember. I've seen quite a few of these and actually, to be honest, they've kind of blurred a bit. I saw another one today from somebody that was ostensibly saying that they were understanding that it was women, not witches. And it was an image of four women in the woods with a full moon and they were in silhouette and they've got hats on and one woman's drinking from a goblet. It's just it's just reinforcing the stereotypes that these women were doing something shady or strange and you know they it kind of implies that they got their just desserts the worst one that i've seen was chinese media we were we made it to china as well china state media who was women to be pardoned as witches and there was a, a picture of it looked like sort of three witches from macbeth and the worst stereotypes of crones you can possibly imagine um, oh yes I remember that one yeah. yeah I mean so it's an odd disconnect and it's a disconnect that still pervades the whole argument and why people 
still think it's okay. I mean, I have really little or no sympathy with people that don't read things but decide to make comments beforehand. Yeah. But, but I will say this much. They are only repeating what has been done for centuries in respect mm -hmm. of women as witches. We remember right back that the iconography and the ideas of why women are seen as witches with the pointy hats and the brooms and the cauldrons and stuff was because in the 19th century, cartoonists wanted to portray political rivals. And if they wanted to portray someone as stupid, inverted commas, they would portray them as consorting with witches because of course by then everyone knew witches didn't exist so ha 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 so it was a figure it was a figure of fun and the idea of witches have become things to scare small children with and um you know those sorts of things and and so because they appear a figure of fun it gives people carte blanche to talk about oh I would put her in a ducking stool or something like that and it's think about what you're talking about yeah, just take a moment, just pause before you type, not you, Claire, but I mean the person like on Twitter, for example, just pause before you say, I think that woman that is alive now should be killed for having this opinion. Like, just take a moment and think about that with the climate that we live in just now, with the recent hideous murders of women in our own country and of the enormous and ridiculous amount of women that are killed every year and just think about what it is you're actually saying. It isn't actually funny. I've got a very dark sense of humour. I've very much got a gallows humour and Claire will tell you that and I think you can probably get that from the podcasts. But I think there's some things that you're just like, that's just really distasteful. And I think that this is one of them. And it's often married up to this question of, well, what's the point of you doing this? It was a long time ago. Are we going to ask the Romans for, you know, an apology from them for what happened? Claire, why is there a point in doing this? The point of doing it is, first of all, justice has no time limit. The people were killed as witches. They weren't witches. We need to restore their proper name to history. And people in the 21st century ought to stand up and say what was done to those people that was wrong. What I think is really interesting about that, Zoe, is that sometimes people think history just starts and ends with them. Like everything mm -hmm. that went on in the past is history, but they don't realise that they themselves will be the history for someone in another thousand years. Mm -hmm. Because in, in 2000 years time, people might be looking back thinking, why, why didn't they do something about that? Why, why didn't they? And in 2000 years time, three or 400 years after it, it's not going to seem like a long time. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Those, are, well, those are thousands of years ago. So it's important that that not only should we bring justice to these people, but we should properly record in the 21st century that what happened was wrong, not only for ourselves to go forward and do better, as I've said, but because history is important. It teaches us things. We learn things by it. That's why we take such an interest in our history. You've said times before, Zoe, if you don't learn what's going on in history you go on to repeat it and people think oh well that would never happen here it, it wouldn't it wouldn't repeat here well elsewhere in the world people are accused of witchcraft and here people are othered they are picked on they are mm -hmm. sought out because they're vulnerable these sorts of recurring themes are exactly that recurring they continue to happen in history and what we should do and it's not asking much is just to say this was wrong. 
And, and yeah. we're talking about some of the comments, Zoe, that have been made. One of them is all about what's the point? The other's about the time and money. What we are asking for is on International Women's Day, somebody to stand up and say, we're really sorry for something that happened to people, mostly women, hundreds of years ago. Is that really too much time and money for people to bear? If I can just make the point as well, just because we're campaigning for this particular issue, it doesn't prevent anybody else from campaigning about anything else that they think is important. So if you think, well, I don't think we should be spending time on this. I think we should be spending time on, you know, looking at how crap the Tory government is. You know, why can't we look at that? Hey, I'm not stopping you. And I would very much join in with that as well. So I think if people have got other campaigns they feel strongly about, we live in a really, in many ways, a good democracy. You know, it's not perfect. Absolutely. It needs needs lots of revision. We need to keep putting the power on. And that's why it's important. So Claire and I, as citizens, are saying this is something we think is important. And because we live in a democracy, it's been listened to. Thousands of people have signed the petition, which shows that actually it does have a groundswell of agreement and engagement. And if you yourself are sitting, you know, in front of your computer in your pants while your mum's calling up to you that your tea's ready and you feel the need to make some sort of hideous misogynistic comment, but there's some other issue that actually really, if you brought it into the light and you campaigned for it and you left the house occasionally and you thought about other people, then go for it. Share the campaign because it will be will be listened to if it's got meaning. And if other people care about it, that can be progressed. So us having this campaign does not stop anybody else from having their campaign. And we would love to hear about stuff that people have then thought, well, I can have some citizen power here. So share it with us and we'll share it with our, our followers and our friends and the people that we've met along the way. You know, like all power to all of us. You don't need to stand on me to have your voice heard. And I think that that's what's really important here is that it's a lesson to all of us. If you feel strongly about something in Scotland, you can try and push it forward. You know, and I think that that's that's very important. One thing that's some guy I'm not going to say is Twitter handle because A, it's stupid and B, he's stupid. Asked me was, do I really think that my campaign and what Claire and I are doing is going to have any impact on those women and elderly people and children and occasional men that are being accused of witchcraft in other countries just now? Yeah. I do, actually. I do think it will have an impact. I'm not saying that us doing it means that where it happens in other countries, people are going to go, oh my goodness, they've got this thing in Scotland, immediately stop doing it. But I am saying that it's it's through things like people talking about history that we change the present and we change the future. And I think if we make it clear in Scotland that this was a thing that we got wrong, yes, hundreds of years ago, but that it's something that isn't isn't all right, it's not acceptable, it's not civilised, then I would hope that that would have some repercussions around the world. People have already, in fact, got in contact with us, Zoe, and said, you know, you've started a, a movement here of people. You've, you've really started a lot of different ideas of conversations, of discussions. The fact that people are talking worldwide about the history of Scotland's women and finding out about it, albeit it's not a good history, but we're trying to put it right, to me is good and important, mm -hmm. the fact we're recognising what went on. So we started off thinking, let's do a festive... Uh, no, I'm here raging well, again. We, well, we keep Honestly. it light. Well, we, welcome to Zoe and I's TED Talk. Um, <laughs> thank you for... <laughs> we thank you for listening to us ranting at you. No, but we, <laughs> we hope... 
we're gonna we're gonna cure climate change issues by by mm-hmm. harnessing the power of furious mm-hmm. middle-aged women that's what we're gonna do we're gonna take that rage and we're gonna turn the lights on or keep the lights burning you could certainly uh, take the temperature certainly that's for sure yeah, yeah. it's hot baby it's, it's hot. hot yeah well happy christmas <laughs> Well, let's put it this way. We have, Zoe, we've been almost two years doing this campaign. We've now got thousands of people worldwide listening to us, supporting it. And every single person who listens, downloads, likes, shares, all of those sorts of things, they are all contributing to the campaign. And that was one thing that I wanted to make an important point on, is that this isn't just us. Although we are the ones pushing it and, and bringing it forward, hundreds thousands of people have got involved in the campaign and in 2022 it's time to call upon all those thousands of people to say this one final push let 2022 be the year that this happens and then i won't have to say at the beginning of podcast this is episode 132 of six (laughs) and we'll we'll move on to a different podcast about something else (laughs) (laughs) or we'll have a wee rest that's either a threat or a promise i'm not quite sure which Zoe. It's both. It's both. <laughs> so before I introduce our fantastic guest for today, is there anything else that we would just like to say in summation there, Claire? Uh, no, in summation, thank you very much just for all your time, for listening to us, for keeping part in the campaign. Just please continue to do what you're doing. And in the next couple of months, hopefully, we'll see some interesting times and let's see whether or not we can't all push. But if you know anyone out there who is in some way influential in politics or involved in politics, please do reach out to them and say, do you know about this? Do you know what's happening? Are you going to be supportive of it? Find out from your local MSP whether or not they're going to be supporting it. It's those sorts of things that you can do to highlight what the campaign is about. And people contact us all the time saying, is there something I can do? Yes. You yourself decide to highlight the campaign to people and tell them that you care about it. Okay. So our guest for today, I am, well, we're both really excited about. This is such a brilliant chat. And this is somebody who we have engaged with tons on Twitter. He's so fascinating and and absolutely brilliant. So I would just like to introduce Owen Davies, who is a British historian who specializes in popular medicine, magic, ghosts, and witchcrafts. He is currently professor in history at the University of Hertfordshire, has been described as Britain's foremost academic expert on the history of magic. Owen's written loads of different books, tons of research articles. And if you don't follow him already on Twitter, absolutely follow him because he shares all these really interesting historical facts, stuff about witch bottles, which we talk about a little bit in the show coming forward. And he's just a really fascinating guy. So without any further ado, I'd like to introduce Owen Davies. Hello, and I'd like to welcome to today's podcast, Professor Owen Davies, who is professor at the University of Hertfordshire, who has got the most fascinating range of work interests. I've just been blabbing to Owen before we pressed record about how delighted I am and that that Claire is too, that he's on the podcast today because his stuff's so interesting. And if you're on Twitter, you absolutely, if you don't already, you need to follow Owen because the stuff you share is so great on there, Owen. So hello and welcome to our podcast. Thanks, Zoe. And good to be here. Always good to talk about witches and stuff. 
Yeah, well, definitely. And one of the things that Claire and I saw you right back at the beginning when we were doing started recording the podcast, so like well over a year ago, you're active on Twitter. And some of the stuff I think that initially that I saw that you posted was kind of like myth busting about different ideas that mm. people hold. And I think that's incredibly fascinating because you'll find this much more because this is actually your professional job. But there seems to be a lot of sort of nonsense believed about what witches did and the idea of witches and who were witches and so on. So I'm hoping we can touch on that a wee bit. Mm. Today. But I'm happy to be led by you, by whatever you would like to talk about, because your publications are huge. You've got an enormous array of things that you've published. So what would you like to start talking about? We can pick up on the myth busting, I guess, which is, I think has become challenging again. If I go back 30 years when I was first sort of researching, doing a PhD, we kind of got to a place, I think, certainly in British witchcraft history studies, where I kind of thought we'd been able to put out there what the actual history was. And the authors like, obviously, Ronald Hutton and Malcolm Gaskell, James Sharp, myself, and Marion Gibson as well, were kind of, hopefully, I thought we were getting somewhere uh, in terms of all the usual things about, you know, in a British context, uh, which is being burned, or, you know, it's gendercide, those sorts of issues. And having taught the subject as well, I, don't, I haven't taught it for a number of years now, it's interesting to see how with the rise of the internet, all of this stuff has just come back again like a flood. And it, you kind of feel rather helpless as a historian to do anything other right. than poop out a few tweets or some stuff on social yeah. media. But it really is. It's swimming in a sea of misinformation uh, and misunderstanding. And when you try and correct, you know, I've been called pompous just for trying to correct this stuff. So in the end, you kind of just sit back and go, okay, you know, if people want to have the false information, I can't, you know, we can't. It's very difficult to counteract it. As we say in Dundee, you just have to say horse on. <laughs> right, okay, well, I'll remember that one. I'll remember yeah. that. Horse on. Horse but, on. Um, but that's interesting. So there, there used to be a lot of misinformation and then it felt like it had been kind of corrected, but with the rise of the internet, people have picked up on, I suppose, what are essentially almost conspiracy theories and have propagated them amongst all their different social media networks. It's interesting where people want to pick up their information from. It's surprising. You know, one of the best books in the 1990s about British witchcraft is still, you know, a template is James Sharp's Instruments of Darkness. Now, hardly, any, hardly anyone reads it now. You right. know, and I keep directing people, if you want to know what the actual facts are and the actual histories, go and look at the likes of James Sharp's Instruments of Darkness. It has facts. It has quantitative data. It has graphs in it. It tells you the rise and fall. It tells you you know, percentages and stuff, hard facts, as well as good narrative as well. But people will then go to sources which appeal to what they want to think. I feel so strongly that the facts are the facts. Don't mess with them. Like, you know, work with the facts that are there. And I know that in history, there will sometimes be room to interpret the facts. Hmm. There might be bits of history that we don't, we don't know exactly what happened. But when facts exist, I think it's, it's so rude to, to ignore those facts and make up your own in inverted commas, facts. What are the top things that people keep getting wrong? Well, one of the ones which I think has become resurgent, and I can understand why, because again, it feeds into people's own sense of self-identity. And one of those is, you know, that it's midwives and cunning folk who are prosecuted and executed. This one just does not go away. And even when yeah. I was teaching, you know, students at the age of 18 pick up on this through social media or whatever. I think perhaps, you know, the A-level syllabus probably does, might not help on this matter as well. Right. So that's one of the key ones. And, you know, how many, I spent half, most of my career explaining, no, there are some cunning folk who are prosecuted. Uh, and that's the same in every country where there were witchcraft or conjuration laws. 
Um, so that's one. One of my things I always try and get across is that the witchcraft acts are actually witchcraft and conjuration acts. The legal impulse behind, whether it's the 1563, 1542, or, or James's Act, the impulse behind them was to target and prosecute cunning folk as much as it was these people called witches. It's just the fact that cunning folk were rather useful people. And in a country which has common law and not inquisitorial or Roman law, if people didn't want to bring a case against them, there would be no trial. There are no inquisitorial judges going around picking people off based on rumour and hearsay and torture or whatever. That's kind of a key one. Um, the, you know, the smaller ones are about burning, you know, cause in an English context, of course. I'll be honest, it's only since Claire and I first met, which is a couple of years ago, and she said to me, do you want to get involved in this, in this thing about witches? And I did think that witches are burned at the stake because it's such a, yeah. such a prevalent it's image, you know. And so I spend a lot of time now saying to people, oh, no, they actually weren't burned at the stake. And I, I, yeah. I keep correcting people and I can see people looking at me sometimes going, yeah, they were. I remember I one of my favourite horror films is Witchfinder General with Vincent Price, you know, which is meant to be about Matthew Hopkins. Great film in its own right. But it has a scene in there where someone's on a ladder and the ladder goes down into the fire, which is taken from a well-known painting or series of paintings in the European context. But people see that and they see that in a, in a setting in a Suffolk Cressix village. Why wouldn't they not imprint that? That so. Whenever I kind of correct this one, so if I put out a tweet about it and say, actually, in England, witches weren't burned. Everyone would go, ah, but what about Mother Lakeland? Uh, she was burned, and then I have to explain and say she's burned because of petty treason, not because she was accused of witchcraft. It's a different thing. I sound like grumpy old grumpy old man complaining about this, but in one sense, I'm fascinated by how this is happening. And it ties in with something, because I'm also president of the Folklore Society at the moment right. as well. And um, you know, I was, one of the things I had tweeted the other day was about the resurgence of survival theory in folklore, which has become flourished for the same reasons that misinformation about the witch trials flourishes. But what is survival yeah. theory? Sorry, sorry. Survival, so yeah, the, the early folklorists and anthropologists 1870s onwards, were absolutely, well, pretty obsessed with the idea that the, the sort of relic customs and traditions and beliefs of the European peasantry were, in a sense, the survivals of pre-Christian religion and, and uh, ritual. So uh, what they would do is going around looking for any signs, whether it's in the material culture, in healing charms, in rituals and traditions, and they'll go, ah, that comes back to sacrifice, or the worship of a sun god, or it might be horse cults is the other one. There's kind of three sort of that, that all merged together. So they, you know, as they're going around collecting information, either from literary sources or actually going out into the field, so to speak, and talking to nearly always rural people, because they weren't interested in going into the towns at that period. They didn't think there was any folklore left in the towns. Everyone was wise and urban and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, there we go. This looks like there's a fire involved here. This must be a need fire. It must be a fire. It must be a pre-Christian relic from when they worshipped the sun and used bonfires. So everything, you know, to the extent that something like, uh, you know, we just had Guy Fawkes Night, they were even arguing that that really in origin was pre-Christian ritual at that time of year. You know. So this has been debunked by folklorists, you know, a century on. There's, there's lots of debunking. You know, I've done plenty of debunking myself on this. But it, at the same time, it's absolutely fascinating because this is just surging back. You can look at the internet is full of people who believe survival stuff in terms of the local rituals and traditions in their place. All this stuff floats around in social media, you know, the millions of options you have to look at stuff. And of course, you know, myself, like others, you, you just flick through, flick through. Oh, that's quite interesting. Flick through, flick through. You know, who's going to go and buy a £45 pound academic book, which is going to counteract something which is actually quite 
nice and exciting, the very thought that all these traditions that we're still creating in, our, in, in the you know, idyllic rural English landscape or Scottish or Welsh, you know, have these great ancient origins. And in the vast majority of cases, they don't at all. It's wishful thinking. But it's become resurgent. And in itself, that's fascinating as a folklorist. So there's two sides to, to, the, to this. And one, one side is a frustration that you can't get the messages across very well. The second part is like, okay, this is really interesting. Why, why is it people want to believe in these things? It's like people trying to find their own origin story, isn't it? Mm. That they're trying to base themselves in something which is beyond them and past and passed through generations. I think that's just such a fascinating idea that people will hold on to that and it doesn't really matter. No, it's seductive. And, you know, it's about personal identity as well, or it might be about place identity. You know, and the idea that you have these long roots and, and roots that extend beyond Christianity, even if you're not a practicing neo-pagan today, you know, there are plenty of people who, who are not practicing neo-pagans, but still are attracted to the idea and kind of valued the, the notion that these things have been able to exist through two millennia of Christian church. People want to, I mean, Kerry Holbrook and I recently wrote a book called Building Magic, where we look at survivals and how it's still circulates in, in terms of the things that people find in their homes that they want to be ritual. They want to believe. And when they're told that their concealed shoe or, or whatever may have, you know, be about protective spirits or as a relic of uh, human sacrifice and the shoe is this kind of residual element. It's wonderful story stuff. And, and people put a lot of emotional value to it. To come along and go, actually, it's probably a builder's tradition. It's probably just for luck, or it may be just a memento we put in the wall. That's still interesting, but it's not as exciting as the the argument that this this has agency, this shoe has agency, it has potency. That's that's really and it gives people a bond. And I can understand that. And that's that's fascinating, you know. People do love to explain things and they, they I think they do like to sort of bind themselves up with stories like that, that they're they're only like a few degrees away from the thing that happened. Mm. And I think mm. we find that a lot with our campaign is mm. that you know, there's a huge amount of support from lots of different types of people, but there is definitely a group of support. And I think I can see a change in this over the time that we've been making the podcast, where initially there was a there was a great deal of people that were saying, oh, I would have been burnt. I would have been accused hmm. of being a witch and would have been burnt at the state. Obviously, that's erroneous. But that was the sort of thing that people would say at the beginning. And over time, we've really looked so hard with different historians and saying, you know, it wasn't cunning folk and midwives it wasn't necessarily you were a redhead or you had a third nipple or that you were you were feisty or that you stood up to men or anything like that it was just people it was just people that was for different sometimes really sort of banal reasons were accused of being witches and i think that is it has changed a little bit but you still see a lot particularly on instagram and, and other social media outlets of people kind of being like, I'm part of this. And that that phrase, we are the granddaughters of mm. the women. I can't, I can't even remember exactly what the phrase is. You couldn't burn or whatever it is. Yeah, we're the granddaughters of the witches. You couldn't burn. Which I think is very alluring because that gives you, a, a, you know, quite a strong sense maybe of, of your own power if you think, you know, I'm descended from that. But it's, it is, I think, bonkers. I think it's technical. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a difficult one to counter. I mean, and again, I you know I, I put information out, but I'm not crusading debunking or anything oh. like that. And I, I just try to understand these things. And, and the topic of empathy in history is something obviously the historians consider quite a lot. And you know, mm-hmm. should should the way in which we write about history or teach history uh, or research it, you know, be empathetic to the past? Should be what distance should we have? You know, to what degrees do we emote about our feelings about the subjects, particularly when it comes to 
you know, 40, 50,000 women who haven't committed a crime, mostly women have committed a crime being executed, the pain and suffering and all those things. And it's important that people do, that your campaign and, and others, I think, are valuable. And we need to have more of those. When you just saw in the newspapers today that 50% of British people don't know that 6 million Jewish people were, were, were killed in the Holocaust. It's amazing how these things slip. Slip, slip, slip. At the same time, as you say, there's a kind of a balance between saying we must empathise, we must put these stories across, we must, in a sense, commemorate, but more importantly, understand. Uh, at the same time as trying not to go down the path of, oh, that could have been me, because mm-hmm. doesn't really, I can see why people say that, because they say, well, I'm marginal, I'm a postmenopausal woman. Um, these are the sorts of people, and I talk about it and age, the age of suspected, which in general, people go, gosh, that's me. That makes me think. And that's, that's the point. Okay, that's, that's good. That's good. That's important. And there's a stage beyond that where it's like, yeah, but exactly as you're saying, Zoe, you know, the multi, we could perhaps talk about that, the multitude of factors which led to witchcraft accusations are not yeah. just because, are not just because you're a woman of a certain age. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in the research that you've done, what were the main sort of drivers of people being accused? There's, for me, there's kind of three. I, mean, I think we, we mentioned this before when we were setting up the interview. There's the kind of three categories that I, I think about in terms of identification of witches. And one is your kind of stereotypical witch. Mm-hmm. One, is, one is your conflict witch, and the other one is the accidental witch. And whether it's the early modern period or in the 19th century, you see the same kind of pattern of how witchcraft accusations come about under those three three headings. So the stereotypical witch is your marginal woman of a certain age who is often a widow, who's often begging, the old begging leading to guilt and accusations. It works. It does work. I mean, that is part of the explanation. You know, you can take Jane Wenham of Walkham, the last person who was found guilty and, and sentenced to, to be executed in 1712. She was exactly that sort of figure in her 50s, 60s, her uh, husband had left her. She had to go begging. She probably used her outside a stereotypical reputation by muttering things as she left and all those sorts of things and played upon it. So there's classic stereotypical outsider marginal and explicitly gendered. These are women, you know, that's mm-hmm. the stereotype. And so accusations do sometimes spring from that relationship. Then a lot of accusations are what are called conflict which. In other words, it could be any age. It can be male or female, mostly female still because of the stereotypes, but still men as well. And conflict witches can be between neighbours. It can be in the workplace. It can be between, within families. So in other words, you don't necessarily have to look like a witch, act like a witch, have the social status of a witch. It's actually the conflicts that lead to people taking out their shotguns over barbecue smells or whatever. You know, the simple and petty frictions and tensions within families, within society. And as we know, if any of you, you know, brought up in close-knit neighbourhoods or villages. You know, the rumour and those things and tales about people live on for years, which is why you get the classic sort of, you know, when you look at deposition records or indictments, you know, it'll say, oh, yeah, well, so that happened to me 10 years ago. That happened to me 15. I remember 15 years ago when, you know, I went, but you know, I took my car past her house and it, the wheel fell off. Funny, I haven't really thought about that for 15 years, but now it all, all comes out, you know. And it doesn't necessarily mean that they were thought to be a witch at the time those curious incidents happened, but when the conflict begins and people start asking to take sides in whatever community, then people go, ah, well, you know, that kind of explains it. But it all arises from a conflict in the first place. That's the whole um, confirmation bias, isn't it? When people look back, confirmation bias absolutely is so problematic when looking at memory in in court cases. People just, they have a narrative of what they think happened and then the 
remember things or, or they fit things into what they think's happened by just pulling out the bits that are interesting to them. And it seems to be how we make stories, but that's yeah. a very really a powerful example of yeah. somebody's reputation being the death of them, really. Yeah. Yeah. And as you say, you you see it in a different context today in criminal court cases and the ways in which evidence gathering takes place. Uh, witness statements, as you say, confirmation bias, powerful, whether it's to do terrorism or whatever. You see, you see that active very clearly. Obviously, the role of torture is a whole other issue. Um, it's placed there, um, which obviously is not relevant to the English context. It's a bit relevant to the Scottish, obviously, and fully relevant to parts of the continent. But the, the final category of accidental, which is the one that people don't really get very often or don't even think about, and that is a, a, a certain number of people uh, were accused of witchcraft purely because they were in the wrong place at the wrong time. Uh, and that can often be because a cunning folk is doing a ritual to identify a witch, which is one of their main services they offered. And if you happen to come to the door looking for a bit of sugar, a bit of bread from your neighbour, you, you may have had perfect relations with them for 30 years. But if you come knocking on the door when the ritual is taking place, you that's it, your life is finished because you have just been identified because of the ritual. So these divination identifying rituals, which were common, because people were going, something's wrong with me, something's wrong with me. Then the next stage is, I don't know who it is. Go to a cunning person. First thing you need to do is identify who it is before you can do something about it. So the whole identification process in terms of divination, as I say, can lead to what we call accidental witches like this. You can find them in the witch trial records. You can find them in 19th century reverse trial court cases as well. Just to check that I've got this right, you would go to a cunning person, cunning folk, mm. and you would say, I need to know who this is. And they'd say, mm. right, okay, go home, sit and wait, do some ritual. And mm. the first person who comes to your house after that is the person who's a witch. Yeah, or the way in which they're the cunning person. Sometimes it would go away. Sometimes they would do a divination in their, their house, the consulting rooms that some of them had. It's very crafty and cunning because cunning folk rarely rarely actually name anyone explicit. This is, again, the psychology of this. They give enough detail or enough abstraction that the person has to make sense of it themselves. So if it isn't directly from a, a ritual, like uh, a witch bottle ritual, where you're, sometimes witch bottles were used to identify as well as to um, be counter magic. But in terms of divination, I had a good example. This was a case I've just been looking at from late 19th century in Devon, and it's actually a probate case which involves witchcraft. And essentially, a man, farmer, prosperous, things weren't going well. So he goes to the cunning person. The cunning person goes, who's doing this to me? Who's doing this to me? And the cunning person goes, mentions something that she is crab-like. Okay, that's it. The person that's doing this to you is crab-like. Like scuttling or? Yeah, like a crab. I don't know. Is it, that's, that's how it works, you see. You, they create, give you enough information for you to try and make sense of it. Now, it so happens that this man's one of his daughter's was, had a disability. Obviously, it meant that her hands, you know, uh, her feet were, were scrunched up, you know, and that to him was proof. Ah, it's my own daughter who's been bewitching me. And that all stems from this divinity practice. She is a classic accidental witch, you know, and what terrible, you know, it's terrible to be accused of witchcraft if you're a conflict witch or whatever, but to be, have perfectly good relations with your family or friends or neighbours and suddenly to be accused is like, what the? You know? Yeah, yeah. That's um, so scary. Mm, just—it's just there's nothing you could do about that either. No. Because once they were accused, that was it, wasn't it? The ball yeah. was rolling, and there was and no. Cunning, you know, back. cunning folk would believe you know powerful stuff. You know, uh, and say, well, if a cunning person is clearly led me to this conclusion, you know, 
But Cunning Folk really, this is why, you know, people go, oh, Cunning Folk, Cunning Folk. I say, well, they're, they're pretty cynical people, you know. They run the gamut from the out-and-out out crooks and rascals, out-and-out out nasty people, really nasty people, to people who are actually quite well-meaning and, and are trying to be conscious and do good. And then there's a whole ocean of them in the middle who are, you know, making money and profit. And this is, you know, cynical stuff. The modern day equivalent might, you could argue, might be like mediums or spiritualists that you would go along to see somebody to find out your future. And yeah. they'd say to you, it's a man with brown hair. Yeah. It's, oh, yeah. it's Jim from accounts. Exactly. I had that in Glasgow where I went along to one of these things with a friend and there was a room in the south side of Glasgow and there were all women I think probably in the like twenties and thirties, and someone said, "I'm seeing a farm in Ireland," and I was like, "There's nobody in this room that doesn't have a connection yeah, to a yeah. family in Ireland." Yeah, you know? Exactly. Yeah, same techniques. Cold reading. You can see yeah. they're cold reading people in the 16th century, 17th century when you when you analyze these interviews that take place between. And sometimes I've come across cunning folk who have, for example, a consulting room, and they they have a papered over hole between them and the office. So they would then employ a stooge or their wife who would sit in the consulting room and then draw a bit of information out out of the, oh, so why are you here? And the person would tell their woe of tale of woe or whether it's theft or witchcraft. And all the time, the cunning folk can hear it because it's a paper, just a papered overhaul. And so when the person goes into the room, they're going, well, I, you know, I can, I can tell you, I think I know, you know, another one on his deathbed, this is a 19th century one, confessed that basically he would then run around. They'd say, oh, the cunning man's out sit in the room, tell me all about it. Then the cunning man would listen. Then he would run around the back of the house, come in through the front door, go, oh, I've just arrived, I've just arrived, come into my consulting room. And below and behold, he knows he knows this whole story. He's managed to divine it, you know. Well, Lots of trickery well goes on. Those cunning folk. They were. They yeah, were yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You mentioned before, Owen, witch bottles, which I've seen pictures of. Could you explain what they were, what their function was? Yeah, um, you know, I should note we're working on a big project at the moment, which is just in its final year with Museum of uh, London Archaeology. In a, probably a couple of years' time, everyone will be able to access basically what's going to be a 200,000-word book, which will be open access and free as a PDF on this Fantastic. subject. So look out for that in a while. Um, but essentially, which, which bottles, we're studying them in an early modern context. So roughly from 1650s through to the early 18th century, a certain type of bottle called a Bellamine or Bartman, called them Bartmans. The ones with the bearded face, you must have seen them, the stone, stone earthenware bottles right. with this rather striking face on it and normally a little medallion, which looks rather symbolic of something. You can read into that what you want. They don't just use these bottles, but it's clearly these bottles are the ones, most of the ones we find because they're really quite solid. And essentially, a witch bottle draws elements from uh, other aspects of anti-witch uh, rituals that go back, use of urine, use of pins. So essentially, what you do is get the urine of the victim, could be an animal, get the urine, put it in the bottle, you take um, something else often of their nail clippings or hair, a bit of them, you know, it's an embodiment of them in this bottle. And then you add sharp objects to it, pins, thorns, or whatever. Then there's different purposes for it. Then... Some rituals is you, you cork it up and you put it in the fire and it burns and burns and then it, the cork comes out or the bottle explodes more dramatically. And that is all about causing harm to the suspected witch. In other words, the bottle um, is representative in part of the victim, but also whatever you do to the victim will affect the, the sympathetic magic. What will happen to the witch? Sympathetic magic. There's a sympathetic connection between witch and victim. 
Um, so if you hit the bottle, then she will have extreme pains in her heart or her bladder or whatever, and that will force her to take the spell off or force her to come to the door. You know, so that's that's when if you turn up at the door when this is going on at midnight, you know, and, it, and we they, they were using them in urban areas as well as rural areas, then you're in trouble because you'll be uh, suspected. The second part. Um, again, which is obviously the ones we find because the ones are in the fire are meant to explode, or if they don't, we find, we find hardly any blackened ones. So the ones that archaeologists find or people find buried under their hearths or under their floors in their homes, they're not always in buildings. They can be in riverbanks as well and ditches. Those ones are obviously, um, in a sense, a form of deterrent. In other words, you same ingredients, but you bury it. It's there permanently. Uh, and that in itself is warding off the witch that bewitched you. And those are the bottles we find because they haven't been, say, damaged through the fire rituals. Right. So the, the urine and the nail clippings and things, is that from the victim or yeah. from... Right, yeah, so that's that, the victim. Yeah. Right, okay. That's, that's kind of the symbolic physical embodiment of the victim. Right. You don't, right. Want, you don't want to put the victim on the fire. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, you know, a, a bit of their person. So uh, is what when you've use. found bottles or an archaeologist have found bottles, what's left of them? Is there still stuff inside? I mean, is, does that just disappear there's, over that? No, there's, there's a very few with their contents still intact. Um, Pitt Rivers Museum has a couple which we investigated. Uh, and if you look on Google, a um, college in Kent found one recently, which is actually in their stores. It was dug up about 20 years ago, but they didn't look inside it. And now they've looked inside it, then you can see there's hair, matted hair and stuff in there. A few of them have a felt heart, cloth heart in it, which again, and clearly I suspect that is one cunning person. So we found five, five, six bottles, but that's clearly one, I suspect one or two cunning folk who are, that's their signature touch. They all that's like to do, thing. they all like to add their little mark to these things. So it's never a completely uniform the standards are always the same, urine, something yeah. sharp, sharp objects. And was that something that was quite widespread across England and other parts of what's now the UK? Or was it just particular parts of England where that happened? It is, it is regional and you can map them out. They're mostly from south, southeast of England. That's right. the Bartman. That's the Bartman jugs. Okay. The tradition carries on and through until the early 20th century. So you'll find examples, and I've found them in both the archives and people have found them. Less so because often they're using glass in the 19th century mostly. And so the survival rate is poor or people wouldn't necessarily realise what it was. I've got numerous court cases of cunning folk being prosecuted and part of the evidence that comes out is that they advised these rituals, put it in the churchyard, put it in your house, put it in your vegetable patch or whatever. But there's very few examples from Scotland. I can't think whether I've come across one example of that on top of my head, certainly not early modern. Scotland had a different sort yeah. of thing, or if they just didn't, it just wasn't a thing in Scotland. I don't know. No, no there's, there are regionalities to this. Yeah. But you, you, you'll, get, you'll still get boiling urine, you know, as, as a ritual, and you'll find that sort of thing fairly pervasive. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Are there any main differences between people that were accused of witchcraft in Scotland and people who were accused of witchcraft in England? In the basics, no. And again, conflict, which accidental, which stereotypical, which on that basis, no. But obviously, when you look through the, the database archives or Path of the Rich archives, you know, you'll find lots of rituals and things, particularly in the, you, you, you know, some of those rich cases where there clearly are cunning folk who are being prosecuted for witchcraft. Uh, they're not being prosecuted necessarily for the popular magic they're being prosecuted because of the accusation of witchcraft that, that attracts to them for whatever reason. And there, obviously, you do find, you know, different relationships, fairy relationships are well-known fairy 
beliefs and connections there are stronger in the Scottish material than they are in the English material of the same period. Um, we still get the same ideas of cunning folk getting their powers from fairies across England and Wales, but it's stronger, or at least more evident, obviously, in Scottish material. That goes right through to the 19th century. That's really interesting. When we've looked across Ireland as well, mm. where the accusations of witchcraft really didn't take off at all, mm. it was because, or at least one theory was because, mm. the idea of calling someone a witch didn't hold the same fear and horror that it might do because there was so much involvement in other world theories, etc. But the odd thing about Scotland is what you're saying is, is there was more at least examples of that, but Scotland had so many more witchcraft accusations mm. than in England. Do you have any explanation that you might give for why in Scotland witchcraft accusations really took hold? Well, it's, it's a really, really interesting comparison. As you, as, you, as you mentioned, it's a matter of debate. Andrew Sneddon's written some interesting work on looking at this issue. And you know, there's, there's the argument that it's because of the strength of the fairy belief in, in both Wales and Ireland that people blame that on the fairies rather than on witches and you can't prosecute fairies. You know, so that's, that's one argument. And there's an element of that, but it's more complex, I think, than that, and as Andrew Sneddon has shown. There's a multiple of other factors and legal factors, and Ireland is a colonial country under English rule. And but there's, there's other things going on as well as that. And as you say, the, the interesting thing is you look at the Scottish material, Scottish fairy tradition is pretty strong, and yet you have you know, intense, intense witchcraft accusations. So I think there's more work to be done around those comparisons. I've been recently looking at asylum records from the 19th century for, and looking at the nature of beliefs, and we've, we've uh, been looking at um, Crichton Royal Hospital records I've been looking at, for example. And we've been looking at ones from the Northwest England. And it's really interesting that the people who are talking about who are in asylums and their supernatural beliefs are expressed in terms of a fear of the fairies or that they're in contact with the fairies are nearly all either Irish migrants who have been working in Manchester in the Northwest in England or they're Scottish. So, you know, it's still strong there and active and people are concerned. So at the same time, if you take that back to the early modern period of fairy belief and Scottish belief, why doesn't it have the same impact if that's kind of the key thing? So it's, it's a really interesting area. We do see in Scotland, I don't know if the phrase is used down in England, he's away with the fairies or mm. she's away with the fairies. Mm. That was a, a comment that was made. Is that, is that used down south as well? Uh, well, it'd be interesting to study how it's used historically, but certainly it's used. You know, people are away with fairies, and it was, that was a part, whole part of fairy tradition, whether it's in England, Wales, or Scotland, or Ireland. Uh, to say, there's the same set of traditions about fairies, including the fact that you you can end up the, enter the fairy kingdom and come back, and you know, decades have passed, or or, or you spent decades in the fairy world, come back, it's only been one day. So, yeah, away with the fairies is, uh, meets general fairy tradition. I see. Okay. So in Scotland, we had this terrible period of time and it took hold. The reasons that we've heard about so far are the fact that obviously the Reformation was happening so that everyone was trying to be godlier than everyone else and, and getting the devil out of society. James obviously writing the book, Demonology, him providing legitimacy from the highest sources and also access to courts that there was a good Effectively, it was a, a relatively good court system where people could could air their grievances. Are, are those the sort of factors? Would you agree that those are the factors? Are they wrong, or is there any other? I think the main factors in Scotland, the fundamentals are the same as they are south of the border. Also, the same dynamics as you get if you strip away torture and you just look at two parts to this. Really, what one is the actual dynamics of witchcraft accusations, and they're fairly similar. 
no matter where you are. The, then the prosecution and trial of witches is a whole different matter because that's all to do with the legal systems. So, I mean, the main point there, I think, Scotland is why was it so much more intense uh, than English prosecutions? And clearly, you know, one of the main reasons is actually the Church of Scotland and the structure of the church in Scotland. If when you look for those Scottish records, and I've piled through many of them, the closeness of the local minister in pursuing, essentially, Kirk ministers, Calvinists, ardent anti-witch campaigners, they were really proactive in Scotland, and they were allowed to be. And so when you look at it, you see, well, the minister reported this, the minister said that, the minister discussed this with it. And that all goes back to central authorities. And so it's really clear that in Scotland, more than in England, that the clergy were motivated and proactive, almost like little mini witch hunters, you know, without the power of trial themselves or anything. But they're kind of like little mini Matthew Hopkins almost in terms of a parochial level of ensuring that they're exterminating these witches and being proactive about making sure these people get prosecuted. You get far less of that in England with the Church of England ministers. That's interesting. I've joked before, probably maybe slightly in bad taste, that the reason that Scotland was so into it is it's something to do with the Scottish nature, that we're just we're just a hard-bitten kind of a <laughs> like to accuse other people and like to think people aren't any better than they think they are, sort of thing. But actually that was quite tied into Calvinism. So yeah. I, just, I think <laughs> I think I'm right. <laughs> I think it's okay. <laughs> Do your confirmation bias right there. <laughs> exactly. But um, you mentioned before as well about torture. So what was the story with torture in England? Was there not as much as, as there was in Scotland? I hadn't realised that. Torture was illegal in, in cases of witchcraft. You could use torturing in terms of treason. Right. Um, but torture was illegal in cases of witchcraft. So for the crime of witchcraft, you could not be tortured at all. Claire, um, was torture legal in Scotland then? Well, interestingly, Scotland prided itself in, you know, not, not doing too much torture. What they would do is they mostly would keep people mm. awake. Mm. They were quite proud of the fact that they didn't indulge in that sort of thing. But the difficulty is, as we've spoken about many times, they basically kept people awake, talking about witches mm. for days on end and drove people mad. And that's sometimes where we get these wild confessions from. Mm. But the Privy Council actually sent edicts out saying people could not be tortured and people would make complaints to the Privy Council in Scotland saying someone is being kept and asked about witchcraft and they are being tortured and the Privy Council would say well don't do that but sadly what I would also do is say well you've got a confession there and now you're going to be able to prosecute that person so properly what they should have done is say that person was clearly kept awake for days and in a state of derangement confessed and we're not going to take that confession, we're not going to use that as evidence against them and have the case mm. collapse. But it didn't. It allowed those confessions to be used against people and for the majority of the evidence in Scotland, that was what was more, most important. Because a, a confession, I think we've discussed before, a confession is the most powerful type of evidence you can have against your own self-interest. And people would say, well, why? Why would they say that? Why would they say these things? And the answer is because they haven't slept for three days and pe that's all people have been talking to them about. Yeah, I mean, we, yeah, the, the only examples of that is, is Matthew Hopkins used sleep deprivation 
you know, um, but again, he was quasi-legal. You know, what he was doing was quasi-legal and was not endorsed uh, as evidence. But I mean, that does raise the other the other issue for the distinctive nature of the longevity of Scottish trials, uh, but also the nature of intensity is is this issue of centres and peripheries, uh, which is well known in witchcraft studies, which is the idea that the more there are independent powers in the provinces or locality, in other words, the reach of the centralised state is weaker uh, across Scotland in this period than it is particularly in 17th century England. And so you do get local state officials along with the Kirk minister in a sense making decisions themselves and they're too far from the reach of the centralised authorities. And you see this pattern of centres and peripheries in other countries uh, in Europe as well. Ah, interesting. So the size and shape of Scotland as it worked and the way the power was structured. Yeah. Uh, and we saw that, didn't we, Zoe, when we were speaking We've recorded with some of the people who were studying witchcraft in Orkney. Oh, yeah. um, they basically were having a law unto themselves up there and mm. with cases completely separately from the government. And, for example, the torture of family members in front of the accused witch, that sort of thing, which the Privy Council wouldn't have allowed had it yeah. known about it. Or it could, but it was just too far away. It couldn't do anything about it. Yeah, it's like classic example is the, you know, the very late doorknock. Oh, yes. Execution yeah. in 1727, I think, 1720, anyway, 1722. The yeah. date gets mixed up. Because of the stone, says 1727. That's it. That's right. But it's 1722, isn't it? I think, if I remember yeah. correctly. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, but that's a classic example where a local sheriff, you know, just pursued it with vigor. And when the central authorities got to hear about, I think we're probably rather horrified that this had happened when it happened. But it was, it was down to the uh, that parochial power. And you see that taking place in Swiss cantons, for example, right through in the 18th century as well. Local officials feel that they're empowered and rather laws unto themselves. What do you think, and, and Owen, don't feel any pressure to give the right answer here. <laughs> what What do you think, I'm kidding. Um, what do you think about the idea of looking for a pardon and an apology for the accused in Scotland? Do you think as a historian that it's, you know, it's happened, move on, or do you think there's worth in it? It's a really interesting one because there's obviously, there's quite a lot of monuments, you know, and there's been a movement over the last 20 years to create monuments to individual trials or individual people who were executed for witchcraft. And obviously, there's a kind of pardon movement and obviously, you know, a lot of debate around slavery and pardons, for example, across whether it's, you know, the Japanese government giving pardons to, you know, Korea or for the service women, as they were called. There's a debate in history about, hold on, how much do you have to, you know, what's inspiring these, these pardons and what's the purpose uh, what's the value? It kind of takes the historian away from, you know, into making value judgments on these things. I think the, the interesting thing about the, what you're doing and others are doing elsewhere in other countries, it's 400 years on, etc. But actually, you know, we, we started by talking about <laughs> the widespread misunderstanding of the witch trials. And that's misunderstanding the individuals who were executed for crimes they didn't commit as well. So, mm-hmm. There's a kind of a, a strong educational benefit in the sorts of campaign that you're doing, because it's not just about, it's not as if saying, yeah, we, we all understand that and let's just pardon them. It's actually saying, well, actually, you probably don't understand really what yeah. happened, what's going on. And, and I think when a pardon campaign is focused on the educational aspects of it, then I think that that's a, a valuable one. Without, without You don't need to start thinking about, well, why are we doing this 300 years or 500 years or X? It's because... We do, as we see, as again, you, you know, the call it a benchmark is how quickly memories fade from from the Holocaust, 
and I'm not comparing the witch trials with the Holocaust as some people do. That's a whole no. that's a whole problem, other problem in itself. But when you see the nature of collective memory so easily dispersed, and then pardon campaigns, I think, serve a value. I think also as well, one thing that Claire and I always go back to too is that this issue isn't isn't just in the past. Obviously, no, there are there are places where there are still accusations of witchcraft against other people, and we've we've mentioned a few times we've we interviewed um, a humanist called Leo Igwe, who's who has an organisation called Advocacy for Accused Witches, and he's he's working very hard across mostly across the continent of Africa, hmm. quite a few countries, where there was a case a few weeks ago in Kenya where it was a grandmother was accused of being a witch, I think, by her grandson. And there was really graphic photographs, yeah. unfortunately, um, of him killing her with a machete. And then there was photographs of her, you know, her charred remains sort of thing. So it is still a case. And it's funny when you were talking, well, not funny, but when you were talking about the three different types of witch, I was thinking about what that woman would have fallen under. And I think maybe that was the stereotype of her just being yeah. an an old lady, you know, and in some ways maybe displeased her grandson in some way. But I think also there's quite a financial angle, I think, sometimes to those cases where there's, you know, people are basically robbers and that's a way of getting, taking money is by mm. person being a witch. So it is still a really relevant, sadly, a really relevant story today. And I think it's interesting for us to be, you know, educating people through the podcast by getting on guests such as yourselves that can say, well, here's what actually happened. And I think that's so endlessly fascinating. You know, there's so many people that are that are listeners to the podcast that didn't know anything about it. I didn't know anything about it, really, even though I've grown up in Fife. And as, as you'll know, Fife had many mm. issues with witch accusations. So I think anything, I'm a teacher, so I think anything that makes people go, oh, I want to read about that, or I want to know a little bit more about it, or, you know, and questioning their assumptions is for the good. So I'm <laughs> I'm obviously for my own campaign. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's <laughs> good to hear, good to hear. I was involved with a children's charity working in Togo uh, a couple of years ago on child witches, and oh. they got me in because they'd got people on the ground to interview in about 20 different villages with, with a mix of um, animist, Muslim, Catholic, evangelical, populations some all villages all just one but sometimes there were mixed villages uh and it was all in french and so i read french so i was looking at this massive really really fascinating material and and they would just go into villages get 20 people around men and women go why 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 are these child witches why do you think they're doing this you know what are witches and it was absolutely fascinating material at the same time talking to charity was really interesting because you know part of the the growth of child witch architecture is clearly down to the evangelical church that's what Leo said. Uh, yeah. Uh, at the same time, the charity has to work through the evangelical church to be able to reach and access the people who are making the accusations against these people, the child witches. So it's a really complex situation, which is further complicated by what degree do I, as an historian of witchcraft in the West, actually bring to understanding contemporary witch trials, child witch trials? And yes, I can, because I can sit there and say patterns, but that doesn't help. That doesn't help. I can say, oh, yes, that happened in the 17th century. We went, we went through this as though that, you know, there's some sort of stage of progress involved, which there isn't. So e even as a historian of witchcraft, exploring what's going on in the contemporary world of witchcraft is a minefield of potential condescension and interpretive challenges. Uh, and the sensitivities are really, you know, are really interesting. One example would be amongst the evangelicals who are, I say, it's not just them making the accusations, it becomes a cultural thing, is the role of the King James Bible. And thou shalt not suffer a witch to live, which you hear through all the early modern witch trials. It's there. They're saying the same things. It says in the King James Bible. 
you know, we're being told in our sermons. It's in the Bible. We read it. If we can read it, it's in the Bible. Now, I can go, well, that's exactly the same as we see there. But what, where does that take us? It tells us the, the role of religious literature. It tells us about the role of literal reading of the Bible. So we, we can make some of these things. But it's very, you know, you have to be so careful not to start making, as I say, condescending across cross-cultural, cross-time comparisons. Mm-hmm. So it's really, it's a really challenging and obviously, you know, yeah, terrible situation. India yeah. as well. And that was well. something that Leo had said, wasn't it clear that he said that, you know, a lot of people from, say, the UK and America go and work in different countries in Africa for different charities and say, oh, we're not having anything to do with that because that's local, that's local culture. And I don't want to come in and patronizingly say you shouldn't do that. And Leo said, no, we need you to come and say that to put pressure on the governments to stop people from killing innocent people or ostracizing innocent people because of these superstitious ideas or these ideas that are superstitious that are being used as a front for getting something else mm. in that situation. It's, it's an interesting, but super complex sort of situation. Yeah, it, it is. Yeah. And it, that charity I work with as part of a bigger umbrella of campaigning to have United Nations recognize child witchcraft on the same level as female genital mutilation, but it brings with it money for training and educational purposes. But you can't just go into communities and they're aware of this. You can't go into just communities and say, what you, witches don't exist. Witches don't exist. I guess you know where. Stop it now. Because, no, yeah, exactly. Stop it now. Witches don't exist. Because I, I often end talks about witchcraft and say, there's absolutely no reason why witchcraft accusations couldn't happen in England or Scotland again. Absolutely no, absolutely no reason. We haven't progressed. We haven't become become mentally more sophisticated because witchcraft is born out of culture and social relationships and networks. It's also based around a a world which is chaotic and uh, everyone's, most people living on the margins. That may happen again. Yeah, well, and that's a point that we've made as well. And we've we've said as well that some people, the small amount of criticism we've had sometimes is, well, you can't judge people from that many years ago because they were ignorant then and they, they were stupid and they, were, they weren't as sophisticated as mm-hmm. you are and it's ridiculous looking through that lens. And, you know, they really weren't. That's something that we've discovered time and time again. They weren't kind of like monosyllabic kind of stupid people. They had oh. very complex and rich lives just like we do. So, yeah. It's- witchcraft, witchcraft made sense in the time. It was perfectly logical and reasonable to believe it. Greatest minds of the, of the early modern world believed in witchcraft, you know, and they still did into the 18th century. It's not about education. It's not about being ignorant you could be highly sophisticated, literate, still be an ardent witch hunter. We were at an event some time ago and a woman at the event said to us, it's just amazing to think people used to believe that, you know, that people believe such crazy things. And I said, well, you know, like without standing on anybody's toes, there are people that believe that they go to particular church services and that things are turned literally into the body and blood of Christ. And that's lots of people accept that as being the truth. You know, and that's, to me, that's not, I'm probably going to get struck by lightning now, but those (laughs) things aren't really that different. That's culture and it's that people really really have these strong beliefs that have been maybe maybe passed down or maybe it shores up who they are and identity or, or like you're saying they're marginalized in some way and that's a, that's something to hold on to or they're frightened in some way or you know the world doesn't make sense to them that the, these things they make sense to those people it is frightening the thought that it could happen again you know yeah no reason there was the case in i think was it belarus maybe was it Belarus? It was a few, a couple of weeks ago, somebody tweeted about it, about how there'd been three women accused of being witches there. And that the women, that you know, they weren't sure really exactly why the media outlet wasn't really sure exactly why they'd been accused, but they had been imprisoned. You know, and I was just sort of thinking like, and they're not too different, probably lots of ways to our culture would be. It's just, yeah, it's mind boggling. 
Yeah, you only have to look at 5G conspiracy. You know, these towers are causing harm or they're, they're a secret conspiracy by X or whatever Chinese government or Bill Gates or whatever. And you think, okay, okay, there's lots of people who believe that. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, and uh, they're, all, they're all educated, often educated people. It's got nothing to do with, it's got nothing to do with being ignorant. For whatever reason, chosen to believe, been inculcated with that notion very quickly. Scary. <laughs> but I think all, all we can do is, is just keep shining a light on, you know, facts and education and, and making things open and interesting to people so they engage with reality yeah. and, and think about these things. So, Owen, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on tonight. It's been really, really great. And you've got so many publications. There's tons of things that people can find out about that you've written about, about magic, about witchcraft accusations and, and tons of other stuff as well. I noticed you've got publications about First World War and about emotions in the supernatural and mm. totally fascinating. So Owen is on Twitter. Is that the best place where people can kind of engage with you? Follow what I you're doing? I, yeah, I'm, I'm very, I don't have websites or Facebooks or Instagram accounts or anything like that. That's my one portal into the... <laughs> it's Twitter or nothing. <laughs> otherwise, otherwise, it's reading the stuff I write. Well, that's me. It's always, always the best thing. It's always the best yeah. thing. Thanks so much for joining us again today. It's been an absolute pleasure. And as this is our Christmas special, Claire and I, my wife and I would, would like to take this opportunity <laughs> to wish you a happy Christmas. And that hopefully 2022 is going to be an exciting year where lots of great things happen, including what we're looking for with the um, campaign. It's now the time to watch it. Yeah, yeah. You should have already watched it before now. What? You know, yeah. Well, I mean, you're leaving it a bit late. Watch it right now. When this is finished, I want you to go and find it. Put on your stripy hat, your stockings, stripy stockings, not like rude ones, and get yourself some eggnog and some like mince pie and then settle down for elf. I'll put on whatever stockings I feel like. It's by, this, by this point in the Christmas viewing, have you done Die Hard? No. Well, I did that. I did that the other night. That's my first Christmas film. And then you need to get on to your actual kind of Christmassy, Christmassy ones. No, you see, I like watching horror at Christmas. Are there Christmas horror films? No, not really. But I just like watching horror movies at Christmas. It's because it's dark during the day. Such a goth, Claire. <laughs> I, top tips for anyone. We're not, we've just moved on to a movie podcast. Top tips for anyone. I always watch at Christmas, though, two movies. Two 19, yeah. movies from 1950s that both were up for the Oscars. All About yeah. Eve and Sunset Boulevard. For women of a certain age... There are no better movies. Okay, well, if you could send your delivery raven round with the DVDs, I will watch them. I shall. They're very slippery for his wee beak, but I hope they get there. You need to work on his mandible muscles. <laughs> Do birds have mandibles? As this comes to the end of you, I think that's the best yeah. question that we can pose for people. Do birds have mandibles? Merry Christmas. <laughs> Merry Christmas. See you in 2022. Bye. Bye. If you'd like to learn more about the Witches of Scotland, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Sign up for our mailing list at www.witchesofscotland.com to keep updated with the campaign. On that site, you'll be able to find how to link with us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. <laughs>